District of Columbia law bans handgun possession by making it a crime to carry an unregistered firearm, prohibiting the registration of handguns, and providing separately that no person may carry a handgun not licensed by the chief of police who is authorized to issue one-year licenses. In addition, it requires residents to keep lawfully owned firearms, which would include long guns, unloaded and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock or similar device. When Washington, D.C. Special Police Officer Dick Heller applied for a one-year license to keep a handgun in his home, it was denied. He thought this was strange since he was already authorized to carry a handgun while he was on duty in the district. So he sued the District of Columbia for an injunction against the enforcement of provisions of the DC Code that made it illegal to keep a functional firearm in his home without a license, arguing that they violated his Second Amendment rights. And in the controversial landmark opinion I'll be reading today, the Supreme Court agreed. We hold that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to have and use arms for self-defense in the home, and that the district's handgun ban, as well as its requirement that firearms in the home be rendered inoperative, violates that right. And now, part one of the opinion of the court in District of Columbia v. Heller. Justice Scalia delivered the opinion of the court. We consider whether a District of Columbia prohibition on the possession of usable handguns in the home violates the Second Amendment to the Constitution. The District of Columbia generally prohibits the possession of handguns. It is a crime to carry an unregistered firearm, and the registration of handguns is prohibited. Wholly apart from that prohibition, no person may carry a handgun without a license, but the chief of police may issue licenses for one-year periods. District of Columbia law also requires residents to keep their lawfully owned firearms, such as registered long guns, unloaded and assembled or bound by a trigger lock or similar device, unless they are located in a place of business or are being used for lawful recreational activities. Respondent Dick Heller is a D.C. special police officer authorized to carry a handgun while on duty at the Federal Judicial Center. He applied for a registration certificate for a handgun that he wished to keep at home, but the district refused. He thereafter filed a lawsuit in the Federal District Court for the District of Columbia, seeking, on Second Amendment grounds, to enjoin the city from enforcing the bar on the registration of handguns. The licensing requirement insofar as it prohibits the carrying of a firearm in the home without a license. And the trigger lock requirement 
insofar as it prohibits the use of functional firearms within the home. The District Court Dismissed Respondent's Complaint The Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, construing his complaint as seeking the right to render a firearm operable and carry it about his home in that condition only when necessary for self-defense, reversed. It held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess firearms and that the city's total ban on handguns, as well as its requirement that firearms in the home be kept non-functional, even when necessary for self-defense, violated that right. The Court of Appeals directed the District Court to enter summary judgment for respondent. We granted certiorari. Part 2 We turn first to the meaning of the Second Amendment. Section A. The Second Amendment provides a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In interpreting this text, we are guided by the principle that the Constitution was written to be understood by the voters. Its words and phrases were used in their normal and ordinary as distinguished from technical meaning. Normal meaning may, of course, include an idiomatic meaning, but it excludes secret or technical meanings that would not have been known to ordinary citizens in the founding generation. The two sides in this case have set out very different interpretations of the amendment. Petitioners and today's dissenting justices believe that it protects only the right to possess and carry a firearm in connection with malicious service. Respondent argues that it protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes, such as self-defense within the home. The Second Amendment is naturally divided into two parts, its prefatory clause and its operative clause. The former does not limit the latter grammatically, but rather announces a purpose. The amendment could be rephrased because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Although this structure of the Second Amendment is unique in our Constitution, other legal documents of the founding era, particularly individual rights provisions of state constitutions, commonly included a prefatory statement of purpose. Logic demands that there be a link between the stated purpose and the command. The Second Amendment would be nonsensical if it read, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to petition for redress of grievances shall not be infringed.
that requirement of logical connection may cause a prefatory clause to resolve an ambiguity in the operative clause. But apart from that clarifying function, a prefatory clause does not limit or expand the scope of the operative clause. It is nothing unusual in Acts for the enacting part to go beyond the preamble. The remedy often extends beyond the particular act or mischief which first suggested the necessity of the law. Therefore, while we begin our textual analysis with the operative clause, we will return to the prefatory clause to ensure that our reading of the operative clause is consistent with the announced purpose. 1. Operative Clause A. Right of the People The first salient feature of the operative clause is that it codifies a right of the people. The unamended Constitution and the Bill of Rights use the phrase right of the people two other times, in the First Amendment's Assembly and Petition Clause and in the Fourth Amendment's Search and Seizure Clause. The Ninth Amendment uses very similar terminology. All three of these instances unambiguously refer to individual rights, not collective rights, or rights that may be exercised only through participation in some corporate body. Three provisions of the Constitution refer to the people in a context other than rights. The famous preamble, Section 2 of Article 1, and the Tenth Amendment. Those provisions arguably refer to the people acting collectively, but they deal with the exercise or reservation of powers, not rights. Nowhere else in the Constitution does a right attributed to the people refer to anything other than an individual right. What is more, all six other provisions of the Constitution that mention the people, the term unambiguously refers to all members of the political community, not an unspecified subset. As we said in 1990, the people seems to have been a term of art employed in select parts of the Constitution. Its uses suggest that the people protected by the Fourth Amendment and by the First and Second Amendments, and to whom rights and powers are reserved in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, refers to a class of persons who are part of a national community who have otherwise developed sufficient connection with this country to be considered part of that community. This contrasts markedly with the phrase the militia in the prefatory clause. As we will describe below, the militia in colonial America consisted of a subset of the people, those who were male, able-bodied, and within a certain age range. Reading the Second Amendment as protecting only the right to keep and bear arms in an organized militia therefore fits poorly with the operative clause's description 
of the holder of that right as the people. We start, therefore, with the strong presumption that the Second Amendment right is exercised individually and belongs to all Americans. B. Keep and bear arms. We move now from the holder of the right, the people, to the substance of the right, to keep and bear arms. Before addressing the verbs keep and bear, we interpret their object, arms. The 18th century meaning is no different from the meaning today. The 1773 edition of Samuel Johnson's Dictionary defined arms as weapons of offense or armor of defense. Timothy Cunningham's important 1771 legal dictionary defined arms as anything that a man wears for his defense or takes into his hands or useth in wrath to cast at or strike another. The term was applied then as now to weapons that were not specifically designed for military use and were not employed in a military capacity. For instance, Cunningham's legal dictionary gave as an example of usage, servants and laborers shall use bows and arrows on Sundays and not bear other arms. Although one founding era thesaurus limited arms, as opposed to weapons, to instruments of offense generally made use of in war. Even that source stated that all firearms constituted arms. Some have made the argument, bordering on the frivolous, that only those arms in existence in the 18th century are protected by the Second Amendment. We do not interpret constitutional rights that way. As the First Amendment protects modern forms of communication, and the Fourth Amendment applies to modern forms of search, the Second Amendment extends prima facie to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, even those that were not in existence at the time of the founding. We turn to the phrases keep arms and bear arms. Johnson defined keep as most relevantly to retain, not to lose, and to have in custody. Webster defined it as to hold, to retain in one's power or possession. No party has apprised us of an idiomatic meaning of keep arms. Thus, the most natural reading of keep arms in the Second Amendment is to have weapons. The phrase keep arms was not prevalent in the written documents of the founding period that we have found, but there are a few examples, all of which favor viewing the right to keep arms as an individual right, unconnected with militia service. William Blackstone, for example, wrote that Catholics convicted of not attending service in the Church of England suffered certain penalties, one of which was that they were not permitted to keep arms in their houses. Petitioners point to militia laws of the founding period that required militia members to keep arms 
in connection with militia service. And they conclude from this phrase that the phrase keep arms has a militia-related connotation. This is rather like saying that since there are many statutes that authorize aggrieved employees to file complaints with federal agencies, the phrase file complaints has an employment-related connotation. Keep arms was simply a common way of referring to possessing arms for militiamen and everyone else. At the time of the founding, as now, to bear meant to carry. When used with arms, however, the term has a meaning that refers to carrying for a particular purpose, confrontation. In Muscarello v. United States, 1998, in the course of analyzing the meaning of carries a firearm in a federal criminal statute, Justice Ginsburg wrote that, Surely a most familiar meaning is, as the Constitution's Second Amendment indicates, wear, bear, or carry upon the person or in the clothing or in a pocket for the purpose of being armed and ready for offensive or defensive action in a case of conflict with another person. We think that Justice Ginsburg accurately captured the natural meaning of bare arms, although the phrase implies that the carrying of the weapon is for the purpose of offensive or defensive action. It in no way connotes participation in a structured military organization. From our review of founding-era sources, we conclude that this natural meaning was also the meaning that bare arms had in the 18th century. In numerous instances, bare arms was unambiguously used to refer to the carrying of weapons outside of an organized militia. The most prominent examples are those most relevant to the Second Amendment. Nine state constitutional provisions written in the 18th century or the first two decades of the 19th, which enshrined a right of citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state or bear arms in defense of himself and the state. It is clear from those formulations that bear arms did not refer only to carrying a weapon in an organized military unit. Justice James Wilson interpreted the Pennsylvania Constitution's arms-bearing right, for example, as a recognition of the natural right of defense of one's person or house, what he called the law of self-preservation. That was also the interpretation of those state constitutional provisions adopted by pre-Civil War state courts. These provisions demonstrate, again, in the most analogous linguistic context, that bare arms was not limited to the carrying of arms in a militia. The phrase bare arms also had at the time of the founding an idiomatic meaning that was significantly different from its natural meaning, to serve as a soldier, do military service, fight, or to wage war. 
but it unequivocally bore that idiomatic meaning only when followed by the preposition against, which was in turn followed by the target of the hostilities. Every example given by petitioners Amiki for the idiomatic meaning of bare arms from the founding period either includes the preposition against or is not clearly idiomatic. Without the preposition, bare arms normally meant, as it continues to mean today, what Justice Ginsburg's opinion in Muscarello said. In any event, the meaning of bare arms that petitioners and Justice Stevens propose is not even the sometimes idiomatic meaning. Rather, they manufacture a hybrid definition whereby bare arms connotes the actual carrying of arms, but only in the service of an organized militia. No dictionary has ever adopted that definition, and we have been apprised of no source that indicates that it carried that meaning at the time of the founding. But it is easy to see why petitioners and the dissent are driven to the hybrid definition. Giving bare arms its idiomatic meaning would cause the protected right to consist of the right to be a soldier or to wage war, an absurdity that no commentator has ever endorsed. Worse still, the phrase keep in bare arms would be incoherent. The word arms would have two different meanings at once. Weapons, as the object of keep, and as the object of bear, one half of an idiom. It would be rather like saying, he filled and kicked the bucket, to mean, he filled the bucket and died. Petitioners justify their limitation of bare arms to the military context by pointing out the unremarkable fact that it was often used in that context, the same mistake they made with respect to keep arms. It is especially unremarkable that the phrase was often used in a military context in the federal legal sources that have been the focus of petitioners' inquiry. Those sources would have had little occasion to use it except in discussions about the standing army and the militia. And the phrases used primarily in those military discussions include not only bear arms, but also carry arms, possess arms, and have arms. Though no one thinks that those other phrases also had special military meanings. The common references to those fit to bear arms in congressional discussions about the militia are matched by use of the same phrase in the few non-military federal contexts where the concept would be relevant. Other legal sources frequently used bare arms in non-military contexts. Cunningham's legal dictionary cited above gave as an example of its usage in a sentence unrelated to military affairs, and if one looks beyond legal sources, bare arms was frequently used in non-military contexts. Justice Stevens points to a study by Amiki supposedly showing that the phrase bare arms was most frequently used in the military context. 
Of course, as we have said, the fact that the phrase was commonly used in a particular context does not show that it is limited to that context. And in any event, we have given many sources where the phrase was used in non-military contexts. Moreover, the study's collection appears to include the idiomatic phrase bear arms against, which is irrelevant. The amici also dismiss examples such as bear arms for the purpose of killing game. Because those uses are expressly qualified, that analysis is faulty. A purposive qualifying phrase that contradicts the word or phrase it modifies is unknown this side of the looking glass. If bear arms means, as we think, simply the carrying of arms, a modifier can limit the purpose of the carriage. But if bear arms means, as the petitioners and the dissent think, the carrying of arms only for military purposes, one simply cannot add, for the purpose of killing game. The right to carry arms in the militia for the purpose of killing game is worthy of the Mad Hatter. Thus, these purposive qualifying phrases positively establish that to bear arms is not limited to military use. Justice Stevens places great weight on James Madison's inclusion of a conscientious objector clause in his original draft of the Second Amendment. But no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. He argues that this clause establishes that the drafters of the Second Amendment intended bear arms to refer only to military service. It is always perilous to derive the meaning of an adopted provision from another provision deleted in the drafting process. In any case, what Justice Stevens would conclude from the deleted provision does not follow. It was not meant to exempt from military service those who objected to going to war, but had no scruples about personal gunfights. Quakers opposed the use of arms not just for militia service, but for any violent purpose whatsoever, so much so that Quaker frontiersmen were forbidden to use arms to defend their families, even though in such circumstances the temptation to seize a hunting rifle or knife in self-defense must sometimes have been almost overwhelming. The Pennsylvania Militia Act of 1757 exempted from service those scrupling the use of arms, a phrase that no one contends had an idiomatic meaning. Thus, the most natural interpretation of Madison's deleted text is that those opposed to carrying weapons for potential violent confrontation would not be compelled to render military service, in which such carrying would be required. Finally, Justice Stevens suggests that keep and bear arms was some sort of term of art, presumably akin to hue and cry, or cease and desist. Justice Stevens believes 
that the unitary meaning of keep and bear arms is established by the Second Amendment's calling it a right rather than rights. There is nothing to this. State constitutions of the founding period routinely grouped multiple related guarantees under a singular right, and the First Amendment protects the right, singular, of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And even if keep and bear arms were a unitary phrase, we find no evidence that it bore a military meaning. Although the phrase was not at all common, which would be unusual for a term of art, we have found instances of its use with a clearly non-military connotation. In a 1780 debate in the House of Lords, for example, Lord Richmond described an order to disarm private citizens, not militia members, as a violation of the constitutional right of Protestant subjects to keep and bear arms for their own defense. In response, Another member of Parliament referred to the right of bearing arms for personal defense, making clear that no special military meaning for keep and bear arms was intended in the discussion. C. Meaning of the Operative Clause Putting all of these textual elements together, we find that they guarantee the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. This meaning is strongly confirmed by the historical background of the Second Amendment. We look to this because it has always been widely understood that the Second Amendment, like the First and Fourth Amendments, codified a pre-existing right. The very text of the Second Amendment implicitly recognizes the pre-existence of the right and declares only that it shall not be infringed. As we said in the United States v. Cruikshank, 1876, this is not a right granted by the Constitution. Neither is it in any manner dependent upon that instrument for its existence. The Second Amendment declares that it shall not be infringed. Between the Restoration and the Glorious Revolution, the Stuart kings Charles II and James II succeeded in using select militias loyal to them to suppress political dissidents, in part by disarming their opponents. Under the auspices of the 1671 Game Act, for example, the Catholic James II had ordered general disarmaments of regions home to his Protestant enemies. These experiences caused Englishmen to be extremely wary of concentrated militia forces run by the state and to be jealous of their arms. They accordingly obtained an assurance from William and Mary in the Declaration of Right that Protestants would never be disarmed, that the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense suitable to their conditions and as allowed by law. 
This right has long been understood to be the predecessor of our Second Amendment. It was clearly an individual right, having nothing whatever to do with service in a militia. To be sure, it was an individual right not available to the whole population, given that it was restricted to Protestants, and like all written English rights, it was held only against the crown, not Parliament. But it was secured to them as individuals, according to libertarian political principles, not as members of a fighting force. By the time of the founding, the right to have arms had become fundamental for English subjects. Blackstone, whose works, we have said, constituted the preeminent authority on English law for the founding generation, cited the arms provision of the Bill of Rights as one of the fundamental rights of Englishmen. His description of it cannot possibly be thought to tie to militia or military service. It was, he said, the natural right of resistance and self-preservation, and the right of having and using arms for self-preservation and defense. Other contemporary authorities concurred. Thus, the right secured in 1689 as a result of the Stuarts' abuses was by the time of the founding understood to be an individual right protecting against both public and private violence. And, of course, what the Stuarts had tried to do to their political enemies, George III had tried to do to the colonists. In the tumultuous decades of the 1760s and 1770s, the crown began to disarm the inhabitants of the most rebellious areas. That provoked polemical reactions by Americans invoking their rights as Englishmen to keep arms. A New York article of April 1769 said that it is a natural right which the people have reserved to themselves, confirmed by the Bill of Rights, to keep arms for their own defense. They understood the right to enable individuals to defend themselves, as the most important early American edition of Blackstone's commentaries made clear in the notes to the description of the arms right, Americans understood the right of self-preservation as permitting a citizen to repel force by force, when the intervention of society in his behalf may be too late to prevent an injury. There seems to us no doubt, on the basis of both text and history, that the Second Amendment conferred an individual right to keep and bear arms. Of course, the right was not unlimited, just as the First Amendment's right of free speech was not. Thus, we do not read the Second Amendment to protect the right of citizens to carry arms for any sort of confrontation, just as we do not read the First Amendment to protect the right of citizens to speak for any purpose. Before turning to limitations upon the individual right, however, we must determine whether the prefatory clause of the Second Amendment comports with our interpretation of the operative clause.
2. Prefatory Clause The Prefatory Clause reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. A. Well-regulated militia In United States v. Miller, 1939, we explained that the militia comprised all males physically capable of acting in concert for the common defense. That definition comports with founding-era sources. Petitioners take a seemingly narrower view of the militia, stating that militias are the state and congressionally regulated military forces described in the Militia Clauses, Article 1, Section 8, Clauses 15 through 16. Although we agree with petitioners' interpretive assumption that militia means the same thing in Article 1 and the Second Amendment, we believe that petitioners identify the wrong thing, namely the organized militia. Unlike armies and navies, which Congress is given the power to create, the militia is assumed by Article I already to be in existence. Congress is given the power to provide for calling forth the militia and the power not to create, but to organize it, and not to organize a militia which is what one would expect if the militia were to be a federal creation, but to organize the militia, connoting a body already in existence. This is fully consistent with the ordinary definition of the militia as all able-bodied men. From that pool, Congress has plenary power to organize the units that will make up an effective fighting force. That is what Congress did in the first Militia Act, which specified that each and every free, able-bodied white male citizen of the respective states, resident therein, who is or shall be of the age of 18 years and under the age of 45 years, shall severally and respectively be enrolled in the militia. To be sure, Congress need not conscript every able-bodied man into the militia because nothing in Article I suggests that in exercising its power to organize, discipline, and arm the militia, Congress must focus upon the entire body. Although the militia consists of all able-bodied men, the federally organized militia may consist of a subset of them. Finally, the adjective well-regulated implies nothing more than the imposition of proper discipline and training. B. Security of a free state. The phrase security of a free state meant security of a free polity, not security of each of the several states as the dissent below argued. 
Joseph Story wrote in his treatise on the Constitution that the word state is used in various senses, and in its most enlarged sense, it means the people composing a particular nation or community. It is true that the term state elsewhere in the Constitution refers to individual states, but the phrase security of a free state and close variations seem to have been terms of art in the 18th century political discourse, meaning a free country or free polity. Moreover, the other instances of state in the Constitution are typically accompanied by modifiers making clear that the reference is to the several states, each state, several states, any state, that state, particular states, one state, no state. And the presence of the term foreign state in Article 1 and Article 3 shows that the word state did not have a single meaning in the Constitution. There are many reasons why the militia was thought to be necessary to the security of a free state. First, of course, it is useful in repelling invasions and suppressing insurrections. Second, it renders large standing armies unnecessary, an argument that Alexander Hamilton made in favor of federal control over the militia. Third, when the able-bodied men of a nation are trained in arms and organized, they are better able to resist tyranny. Three, relationship between prefatory clause and operative clause. We reach the question then, does the preface fit with an operative clause that creates an individual right to keep and bear arms? It fits perfectly once one knows the history that the founding generation knew and that we have described above. That history showed that the way tyrants had eliminated a militia consisting of all the able-bodied men was not by banning the militia, but simply by taking away the people's arms, enabling a select militia or standing army to suppress political opponents. This is what had occurred in England that prompted codification of the right to have arms in the English Bill of Rights. The debate with respect to the right to keep and bear arms, as with other guarantees in the Bill of Rights, was not over whether it was desirable, all agreed that it was, but over whether it needed to be codified in the Constitution. During the 1788 ratification debates, the fear that the federal government would disarm the people in order to impose rule through a standing army or select militia was pervasive in anti-federalist rhetoric. John Smiley, for example, worried not only that Congress's command of the militia could be used to create a select militia or to have no militia at all, but also as a separate concern that when a select militia is formed, 
the people in general may be disarmed. Federalists responded that because Congress was given no power to abridge the ancient right of individuals to keep and bear arms, such a force could never oppress the people. It was understood across the political spectrum that the right helped to secure the ideal of a citizen militia, which might be necessary to oppose an oppressive military force if the constitutional order broke down. It is therefore entirely sensible that the Second Amendment's prefatory clause announces the purpose for which the right was codified, to prevent elimination of the militia. The prefatory clause does not suggest that preserving the militia was the only reason Americans valued the ancient right. Most undoubtedly thought it even more important for self-defense and hunting. But the threat that the new federal government would destroy the citizens' militia by taking away their arms was the reason that right, unlike some other English rights, was codified in a written constitution. Justice Breyer's assertion that individual self-defense is merely a subsidiary interest of the right to keep and bear arms is profoundly mistaken. He bases that assertion solely upon the prologue. But that can only show that self-defense had little to do with the right's codification. It was the central component of the right itself. Besides ignoring the historical reality that the Second Amendment was not intended to lay down a novel principle, but rather codified a right inherited from our English ancestors, petitioner's interpretation does not even achieve the narrower purpose that prompted codification of the right. If, as they believe, the Second Amendment right is no more than the right to keep and use weapons as a member of an organized militia, if, that is, the organized militia is the sole institutional beneficiary of the Second Amendment's guarantee. It does not assure the existence of a citizen's militia as a safeguard against tyranny. For Congress retains plenary authority to organize the militia, which must include the authority to say who will belong to the organized force. That is why the first Militia Act's requirement that only whites enroll caused states to amend their militia laws to exclude free blacks. Thus, if petitioners are correct, the Second Amendment protects citizens' right to use a gun in an organization from which Congress has plenary authority to exclude them. It guarantees a select militia of the sort the Stuart Kings found useful, but not the people's militia that was the concern of the founding generation. Section B. Our interpretation is confirmed by analogous arms-bearing rights in state constitutions that preceded and immediately followed adoption of the Second Amendment. 
Four states adopted analogs to the federal Second Amendment in the period between independence and the ratification of the Bill of Rights. Two of them, Pennsylvania and Vermont, clearly adopted individual rights unconnected to militia service. Pennsylvania's Declaration of Rights of 1776 said that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. In 1777, Vermont adopted the identical provision, except for inconsequential differences in punctuation and capitalization. North Carolina also codified a right to bear arms in 1776, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of the state. This could plausibly be read to support only a right to bear arms in a militia. But that is a peculiar way to make the point in a constitution that elsewhere repeatedly mentions the militia explicitly. Many colonial statutes required individual arms-bearing for public safety reasons, such as the 1770 Georgia law that, for the security and defense of this province, from internal dangers and insurrections, required those men who qualified for militia duty to individually carry firearms to places of public worship. That broad public safety understanding was the connotation given to the North Carolina right by that state's Supreme Court in 1843. The 1780 Massachusetts Constitution presented another variation on the theme. The people have a right to keep and to bear arms for the common defense. Once again, if one gives narrow meaning to the phrase common defense, this can be thought to limit the right to the bearing of arms in a state-organized military force. But once again, the state's highest court thought otherwise. Writing for the court in an 1825 libel case, Chief Justice Parker wrote, The liberty of the press was to be unrestrained, but he who used it was to be responsible in cases of its abuse, like the right to keep firearms, which does not protect him who uses them for annoyance or destruction. The analogy makes no sense if firearms could not be used for any individual purpose at all. We therefore believe that the most likely reading of all four of these pre-Second Amendment state constitutional provisions is that they secured an individual right to bear arms for defensive purposes. Other states did not include rights to bear arms in their pre-1789 constitutions although in Virginia a Second Amendment analog was proposed, unsuccessfully, by Thomas Jefferson. It read, No freeman shall ever be debarred the use of arms within his own lands or tenements. Between 1789 and 1820, nine states adopted Second Amendment analogs. Four of them Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, and Missouri 
refer to the right of the people to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state. Another three states, Mississippi, Connecticut, and Alabama, used the even more individualistic phrasing that each citizen has the right to bear arms in defense of himself and the state. Finally, two states, Tennessee and Maine, used the common defense language of Massachusetts. That of the nine state constitutional protections for the right to bear arms enacted immediately after 1789, at least seven unequivocally protected an individual's citizen's right to self-defense is strong evidence that that is how the founding generation conceived of the right. And with one possible exception that we discuss in Part 2D, 19th century courts and commentators interpreted these state constitutional provisions to protect an individual right to use arms for self-defense. The historical narrative that petitioners must endorse would thus treat the Federal Second Amendment as an odd outlier, protecting a right unknown in state constitutions or at English common law, based on little more than an over-reading of the prefatory clause. Section C. Justice Stevens relies on the drafting history of the Second Amendment, the various proposals in the state conventions and the debates in Congress. It is dubious to rely on such history to interpret a text that was widely understood to codify a pre-existing right, rather than to fashion a new one. But even assuming that this legislative history is relevant, Justice Stevens flatly misreads the historical record. It is true, as Justice Stevens says, that there was concern that the federal government would abolish the institution of the state militia. That concern found expression, however, not in the various Second Amendment precursors proposed in the state conventions but in separate structural provisions that would have given the state's concurrent and seemingly non-preemptible authority to organize, discipline, and arm the militia when the federal government failed to do so. The Second Amendment precursors, by contrast, referred to the individual English right already codified in two and probably four state constitutions. The Federalist-dominated First Congress chose to reject virtually all major structural revisions favored by the Anti-Federalists, including the proposed Militia Amendments. Rather, it adopted primarily the popular and uncontroversial, though in the Federalist view unnecessary, individual rights amendments. The Second Amendment right protecting only individuals' liberty to keep and carry arms, did nothing to assuage anti-federalist concerns about federal control of the militia. Justice Stevens thinks it significant that the Virginia, New York, and North Carolina Second Amendment proposals were embedded within a group of principles that are distinctly military in meaning such as statements about the danger of standing armies. But so was the highly influential minority proposal in Pennsylvania, 
yet that proposal, with its reference to hunting, plainly referred to an individual right. Other than that erroneous point, Justice Stevens has brought forward absolutely no evidence that those proposals conferred only a right to carry arms in a militia. By contrast, New Hampshire's proposal, the Pennsylvania minority's proposal, and Samuel Adams' proposal in Massachusetts unequivocally referred to individual rights, as did two state constitutional provisions at the time. Justice Stevens' view thus relies on the proposition, unsupported by any evidence, that different people of the founding period had vastly different conceptions of the right to keep and bear arms. That simply does not comport with our long-standing view that the Bill of Rights codified venerable, widely understood liberties. We've finished the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode ended. <laughs>